1: There's lots of people in Downing Street, which is always like a court, no matter who the Prime Minister is. And the currency is how often can you get in front of the Prime Minister? So you've got to have a defined job. If you don't have a defined job, you've no reason to be in the meetings and you end up feeling very dissatisfied. So whatever you do, define a job. And I thought, I'll define my job as speechwriter. What a great job. I'd never written a speech in my life. goes back to comedy, I'd realised that one of the best ways in which you can concede a point is to wrap it up in a joke, because an audience takes the point whilst they're laughing. So we were a strongly conservative family, and the, the, it was the, the mid and then late 70s, and, and Margaret Thatcher was a hero to them. Which again was really important when I came to get this career break that I'm going to tell you about later, because that ability to understand why Margaret Thatcher was appealing to people like my parents was a critical factor in what I then went on to do.
0: Hello. And Welcome to this live podcast recording of the now award-winning How I Found My Voice Live. I'm Samira Ahmed and the idea is I go behind the celebrity persona to find out what influences shaped their success. How did politicians, artists, performers, writers grow up to become such great and unique communicators? And my guest today is Philip Collins, currently a journalist but also a novelist, uh, the author of two books about politics, one called When They Go Low, We Go High. He was chief speechwriter for Prime Minister Tony Blair. Blair in the last two years of his premiership from 2005 to 2007. And previously, he'd been director of the centrist think tank, the Social Market Foundation and an investment bank analyst in the City of London. Uh, Philip, welcome.
1: Thank you very much. It's very nice to talk to you.
0: Phil, I always like to take people right back. So you grew up in a council estate in Bury in Greater Manchester. I'm guessing this is the early 70s. Um, It's a setting, I think you gave one of your heroes in your novel, The Men from the Boys. What was it like?
1: Well, yeah, that's that's right. It was um, actually a fantastic place to grow up. I mean, you only grow up once and, and wherever it is, you, that's what the world is. That's what it seems like. And it was very, um, it was great fun. I was always kind of outside, playing outside. And, and our life was centred around the local church. Um, and we, we were part of the Church of England. And though none of us really had any great religious belief that seemed a, a relatively unimportant aspect of being part of the church of england it was a it was a social scene and um, and really it was my first acquaintance with beautiful language too that that was my first influence because the king james bible is a work of literary genius and even at the age of 8 i didn't really believe it had any cosmological significance but i did know that there was something beautiful about it and i think that today and i was on, in the church choir and i loved the music And I love the language of the service. And I I mean, this will recur as we talk through my life, because the grounding I got in the language of the Church of England then later contributes to a a big break I had uh, in my career. So that was the first kind of moment that I came to love language, I think. It was through the church, which is a very important um, component, both in the in the way we lived, but also in what subsequently I went on to do.
0: And tell me about your family. What were they like?
1: Well, th- we were a, a very peculiar kind of class hybrid in a way because both my parents were teachers. My mum was a primary school teacher whose job was to teach young kids how to read. And um, she worked in a sc- For most of my childhood, she didn't work. Uh, But when she went back to work, she taught mostly young Bangladeshi kids in a a mill town, which was changing very quickly. So I had a real grounding, strangely enough, in really vehement anti-racism from my mum, because my mum loved these kids who she was teaching to read. My dad was a PE teacher who'd been uh, a Welsh rugby player, and uh, he was an amateur opera singer. And so we had all sorts of funny cultures going on. But through magnificent neglect of their finances. My parents never had any money. So we lived in the resolutely working class part of town because culturally, though my mom had become a teacher, she'd gone away to uh, teacher training college and in a way had gone on a social mobile journey she never changed culturally at all. And we live very close to my grandparents, her parents. And so we lived a culturally very working class life, even though intellectually, we were already going somewhere else. So my house was the only one in the street, really, that was completely full of books. So all of my friends from around uh, the estate were kids who ended up, the the ones who were lucky ended up being plumbers and sheet metal workers, etc. Some of them uh, didn't uh, have that kind of outcome, unfortunately, was it was always kind of thought that I'd be going somewhere else. So I felt both inside the northern white working class and also outside it from the very beginning.
0: You mentioned your mother, you know, being kind of very strongly anti-racist and bringing that into the home. But would you say there was much politics in your home when you were a child?
1: There were some politics, but they were all totally conservative. That's conservative birth with a small and a large C. We were a working class Tory family. Uh, and I'm describing really my grandparents there rather than us. Uh, my grandfather was, I mean, it, it sounds, this is gonna sound like a really bad sketch for a sub Dickensian novel, but he left school at 15, went to work in the local textile mill and, and where he worked for 50 years And he had his picture in the Berry Times, a gold clock. He was the foreman by the time he left. And the mill was owned by the person who then became the Tory MP for Berry. So my grandfather saw conservative politics as part and parcel of getting on, of being a disciplined and adamantine uh, creature who would drive his family forward. And to be conservative was to have that kind of ambition for your family. And my mom inherited those politics. And my dad um, who, came, who was from Wales, a different tradition, but nevertheless was basically conservative. So we were a strongly conservative family and the, the it was the, the mid and then late 70s and, and Margaret Thatcher was a hero to them, which again was really important when I came to get this career break that I'm going to tell you about later because that ability to understand why Margaret Thatcher was appealing to people like my parents was a critical factor in what I then went on to do.
0: I wanted to ask a bit about the cultural influences you Um, that you had as a child? Because I think a lot of us who were kids in the 70s, we did watch a lot of television. But sometimes there was a big divide about what you watched. And I think there was in your home, wasn't there?
1: Yeah, no, it was absolutely explicit. Uh, The reasoning was that my parents thought ITV was vulgar, um, low grade, down market, whereas the BBC was proper and and real and and, and was uh, educational. And so we were encouraged to watch the BBC. So we watched a lot of television and uh, and were very much discouraged from watching ITV. So there were certain shows which were really big at the time, which all of my friends were watching. I remember particularly Mork and Mindy, I really resented because, I mean, it turned, Robin Williams, it was brilliant. I've never seen it because we weren't allowed to watch it.
0: See, I, I thought you would sit on the buses, which I loathed and is a, such an ITV show. And it's both incredibly racist, but also incredibly sexist. A lot of uh, peeping Tom stuff. But it wasn't. the & Mindy seemed so harmless.
1: Yeah, well, I, I know. But it was a blanket um, <laughs> prescription. It, it, there was no judgment of particular programs. It was it was the whole channel. We literally weren't allowed to put it on. So we watched the BBC and I, I watched a lot of things. And I, the, the program I most loved, strangely enough, because I was probably a, quite an odd child, from an early age, I loved being able to stay up to watch Parkinson. Um, it was late at night, and I, I was only a teenager when I started to watch it. But I loved talk shows, uh, and I, I loved Peter Ustinov, and I loved Jonathan Miller, and I loved Billy Connolly on Parkinson. Because, again, that was the, first ignited this this conversational facility, this brilliant capacity for language that these people had. And they were given time to to unfold their stories, and I loved that. Watching telly was a, just a marvellous thing to do. and I, I, To this day, I, I don't understand why people are snobbish about... Television, I think it's a wonderful medium. Apart from ITV, of course, which is low grade and down market, and you must never watch it.
0: You went to grammar school, and the eleven plus, you know, did prove to be such a big divide for many people. Did it change your life?
1: I suppose it did. Yes, I mean, I got a sort of scholarship out of the eleven plus, and so I then went to the grammar school. It didn't feel like it changed my life because, as I said before, it was always assumed that that's that's what would happen to me. So it felt like just the fulfilment of a plan. There was never any doubt that my parents would want to send me to the grammar school. It was a, a grammar school which had, in the year before I went there, been a state grammar. And then in the year that I went, went became an independent grammar after the Labour Party uh, had sort of t- tried to you know, get rid of the state of direct grant. Another reason why my family were vehemently opposed to the Labour Party, I should add.
0: Shirley Williams, a lot of parents of um, your parents' generation feel very strongly about what she did while sending her own children to private school.
1: Absolutely. My, My parents really, really, really marked them. And it's one of the rare occasions that politics directly affects people's view of the world. And so that was my parents' view. They wanted me to go to the grammar school because that way I would not go to the local school, which really was at the time pretty dreadful. So I did go to the grammar school and I suppose it did change my life. Yes. I mean, to what extent, I don't know. I don't know how I would have done had I gone to one of the other schools in Bury. Probably OK, but but it was certainly a better school than I would otherwise have got to. So I, I'd be I'd be kind of kidding myself to pretend it didn't haven't make any difference.
0: And you went on to study history at Birmingham University. What was your plan?
1: My plan was to be a historian. Uh, I'd I, I, I used to declare to anyone who would listen that I'd never have a proper job, and I, I, an ambition I think I've succeeded in fulfilling as it happens. But my only ambition at the time was to be a historian because I'd kind of fallen under the spell of the historian A.J.P. Taylor. And when I was an A-level student, I started to read more than I'd ever read before. I had a spell of reading enormously when I was about 10. I read Dickens. I read all of Dickens in abridged versions, but I read the lot and then I sort of stopped and I just played football and cricket for a few years. But then I, then I found history and the historian A.J.P. Taylor, I loved and I loved Thomas um, McCauley, and I loved Carlyle, and I wanted to be a historian. So my my plan was to just stay in academic life for all of my life and write history books of no interest to anyone other than me.
0: Um, you did a PhD in political theory at Cambridge University, and it was about utopias, which is a very interesting choice of subject.
1: It was really fascinating. I loved it. It came to me through uh, conservatism. Because I'd had such a grounding in what conservatives thought, it struck me that conservatism didn't have an idea of the future. The very elixir of conservative thought is it's so practical and it's so contemporary and now and it just fixes problems as they arise or at least attempts to it doesn't have any doctrinal idea of where we're going particularly and that struck me as a very interesting thing not to have because all left of center species of thoughts have some kind of destination in mind some sort of uh, picture or portrait of the just society and so I wanted to study utopia To see, if you don't have a utopia, what are you missing? And this changed me a lot. I mean, the voice, insofar as I've got one, is comprised of two things. One is the style of writing. There's lots of influences on that. But the other is the things that you think, the the philosophy you end up with, the world view. And I definitely changed my mind during the course of reading three years in Cambridge, which was idyllic, really, to have three years to reflect and think. And I, I went into Cambridge as a... Lukewarm social democrat, I suppose, someone who'd been very attracted by the SDP in 1981, which is my first political, exciting moment. Uh, but then I but I came out of it much more of a liberal because I began to see the detri- the malign effects that the desire to establish utopian societies can have and how easily that can go wrong. So it made me much more aware of the deficiencies of doctrine. So it changed the way I think quite significantly I think and I went I went from kind of ordinary labour party social democracy to much more of a John Stuart Mill liberalism.
0: Now you wrote a couple of comedy shows for the Edinburgh Fringe while you were at Cambridge and I wonder you know we talked about Billy Connolly and all the comedy you loved watching as a child was that experience of writing comedy significant in shaping you as a, as a future speechwriter?
1: I think it was enormously so, yes, because it's, comedy is an incredibly good discipline because it's one of the few forms of writing where you're explicitly asking for a verdict from the audience, every other line. If, you, if they don't do what you're bidding them to do, then as the terminology has it, you die. You know the, we, the, All the terminology of comedy is about death because it's awful if you seek a laugh and one doesn't come. And so the discipline to cut away all the fat in comedy is a really, really good discipline for all kinds of writing. And I definitely have very often compared it to uh, speech writing. I mean, I first got the comparison actually from one of my heroes, Clive James, who I started to read when I was in Cambridge and had been the president of Footlights and I wanted to be like him. I wanted to be like him because he wrote so beautifully. But I also wanted to be like him because he refused to specialize. I'd had, as you probably can already tell, I'd gone all over the place and I had so many different interests. And, you know, my mom always said I could never stick at anything, but I thought it was just sort of prolific interest. And I, and I loved people like Clive James, like Jonathan Miller, um, like Alan Bennett, who were incredibly various and sort of promiscuous in their interests. So, I wanted to write comedy um, to to be like that, and I found it a really, really good discipline because if you labour a point in a comic script, you lose the audience. You have to get through it very fast, and the setup has to be right, but it also has to be quick, and I think that's true of good rhetorical writing too. If you... You you can easily bore an audience. You can lose them very quickly. So comedy writing is a fantastically good discipline, I think, for all kinds of writing.
0: Now, I asked you to bring some of your favourite writing and you've got some Clive James, haven't you?
1: I have, I have. I just want to read a very short uh, extract, which is from an essay that Clive James wrote on another literary hero of mine, a very conventional hero for someone of my age to have, which is George Orwell. And, you know, I loved... Orwell from a very early age. And I think he's a great mentor. It's, a, it's quite important who you read at formative ages, I think. And I read people who, like Orwell, like Camus, like Mill, who were very clear. And I think if you read people who are very complex and obscure, it can probably harm you. I read them and I got their clarity and I loved the clarity they had. But in this essay, Clive James points out that Orwell Orwell's clarity is also a problem because you've got to watch him because people are incredibly clear, can also be wrong. And when they're wrong and clear and compelling and articulate and attractive, you can be seduced by that. So you've got to be on your guard all the time. And he taught me this in this essay. But then he ends with this just brilliant payoff. And what I love about this passage is the rhythm. It's the music that you, that you hear. It runs like this. At a time when ideological politics still exercised such an appeal that hundreds of purportedly civilised voices had ceased to sound human, Orwell's style stood out. The remarkable thing is that it still does. Ideologues are thin on the ground nowadays, whilst any substantial publication has a would-be George Orwell rippling the keys in every second cubicle, but the daddy of modern truth-telling still sounds fresh. So it wasn't just the amount of truth he told, but the way he told it, in prose transmuted but to poetry by the pressure of his dedication. This great addition, by revealing fully for the first time what that dedication was like, makes his easy-seeming written speech more impressive than ever and even harder to emulate. To write like him, you need a life like his, but times have changed, and he changed them.
0: Before we get into the world of kind of politics and speech writing, you know, you do what a lot of bright graduates did in the 1980s. You went into the city, you went into in, um, investment banking, um, Fleming Investment Management, then HSBC, and finally, head of UK equity strategy at Dresda, Kleinwort Benson. There's a lot of money to be made. And I was at university around the same time as you. And I remember thinking this is something I would never do. I'm, I'm really interested in why you decided to go for it.
1: Well, I was I was a bit older than most people who did, so I'd, I'd already done my PhD and I'd already had, uh, I'd course, already worked yes. in politics a bit. So I, I did it out of sheer curiosity. I did it precisely because I knew nothing about it. I, I'll we'll come back to the time in politics because it's also the link back to the Church of England. But I had mm. been bitten by politics and I loved it and I found it fascinating. But I... Realized I didn't want to have just done politics. I thought I needed to do something else. And my desire to be an academic had been completely crushed by the act of doing a PhD, which in many respects I really loved and it formed me. And I, I, the reading I did has changed me completely. But I realized I didn't want to be an academic. I didn't want to become more and more specialized about a smaller and smaller part of uh, scholarship. And I thought I'll come back to that when I'm older and so i want to go back to london and i want to go into back into work but i'm i'm not going to go straight back to politics i'll go and do something else first and i actually it was as mundane as i had a few students who i was teaching and they had all the brochures for these investment banks and i thought well i don't know anything about this i don't know what they do i'm vaguely against it in some sort of teenage left wing way i think it's probably bad and wrong it's like the financial equivalent of watching itv so why don't I apply and see what, see what it's like? So I applied and I wrote to a few banks and said, I'm a 26-year-old uh, PhD student who's done this and that and the other. And I've got no banking interest or experience or knowledge of any kind. Um, am I any use to you? And almost all of them wrote back to say that I was no use to them whatsoever. And Flemings wrote back and said, oh, you sound quite interesting. Why don't you come and have a talk? And, and I did. And I really liked them. And I went there and I then got a big break because because I'd been briefly uh, in Labour politics as a researcher in my early 20s. It was 1995 when I was in the city and it was already becoming obvious that there was going to be a Labour government. Blair was clearly going to become Prime Minister, Brown was clearly going to become Chancellor and the city didn't really understand this new Labour Party, whereas I did because I knew all these people. So I became quite potent and quite um, interesting to the senior people, even though I was quite junior. So I got, I, ex- I had a very accelerated movement for that reason, and I ended up moving to being a, an equity strategist. and And for five or six years, I really enjoyed it, and I found it interesting. I was learning a lot. I learned a new language. I became numerate again because I've always actually loved numbers.
0: Earned a lot of money.
1: I, I, I do I earned a lot less than you might think because. Firstly, it was a bit before the really big era of big salaries. And also, just the moment I started to make quite a lot of money, I left. So I I was deeply stupid. I'd I'd done all the hard work and then I got bored and left. Because my boredom threshold is much more important to me than, than my financial threshold.
0: So tell me about then when you do move properly into politics. Is this when you go to work for Frank Field or was that before?
1: Yeah, it's when I go to work for Frank Field. And this is the... This is the importance of the Church of England. This is where that comes back to be a major component in my future.
0: I oh, should just say the labour m p for birkenhead at the time
1: that's right so so frank's m p for Birkenhead, and uh, the crucial context is that he has been uh, just been deselected by. A, a very left-wing group who are the sister group of militants called Socialist Organiser. So it's, a, it's the 1980s. It's that, it's that yeah. first wave of really left-wing takeover of the Labour Party. And Frank gets deselected, but he decides to, uh, he wants a, a researcher. So he advertises, and I see it in The Guardian, and it's pointed out to me by a friend of mine. And I had no intention, really, of, imply, of applying. I didn't have any political background. But uh, I sent in I can't believe I did this, but I sent in a card, just a one card. And the advert in the paper had said, Frank Field, MP, is looking for an interesting go-ahead dynamic researcher to set the agenda for the 1990s. It's 1989. And I wrote back with with just a piece of card. I said, I am an interesting, dynamic, go ahead, young researcher looking to set the agenda for the 1990s, looking for a Labour MP, looking for a dynamic, interesting, go ahead researcher looking to set the agenda for the 1990s. And his uh, assistant picked out my card as a sort of bizarre application amongst, amongst all these conventional CVs. And I got invited to go along to do a test, a written test. And the written test was to write a speech defending Mrs. Thatcher. Now, you can imagine for left of centre, young, earnest graduates in 1989, this was like justifying hellfire. To me, it was easy. I just wrote what my parents and grandparents thought. So I, I knew all the answers. So I wrote a, a, a speech for him defending Mrs. Thatcher, which he liked. That got me through to the final interview. And I went to see Frank at the House of Commons And we spent an hour talking about why the King James version of the Bible was wonderful and why the 1928 Thomas Cranmer's edition of the prayer book was the only one that anyone should ever use and why modernizing the language of the Church of England was diabolical. We didn't talk about anything else. And we just got on really, really well. And of course, I had all these strong opinions about the language of the Church of England because my mum cared about it so much. And so we just got on famously and he offered me the job. So it was because I knew about Margaret Thatcher and the King James Bible, I got my break. And it was a pivotal moment because all the people I then got to know whilst being a researcher for Frank Field subsequently went on to long careers in Labour politics, some of them still there but the David Miliband, Sir James Pennells, the Ed Balls. I, I know all of those people from that period. So, so that was the moment that everything changed, really. That's where I got into the political world, the world of public life. That was a big moment.
0: And how did you come to work for Tony Blair?
1: I'd left the city. I'd gone to run a think tank, which was sort of halfway point between being an academic, which I thought I'd been, and, and being in politics. And I really enjoyed it. I'd Um, I I loved running a think tank. I I loved the business aspect of it too, is you have to run a small business and I really enjoyed that. Uh, But I like the intellectual endeavour and really it goes back to my previous answer that lots of the people I knew back when I was a researcher for Frank Field were now working for Tony Blair. So I knew everybody and they needed someone to come and write for them. I'd done various kinds of writing in different formats. I'd done the, the... the footlights, things as you'd said. I'd written a play. I'd written a couple of novels. I'd always thought of myself as a writer, really, even though I hadn't been employed as a writer. And so they asked me if I wanted to go and work with Blair, and I insisted that I be the speechwriter. And I, I was, I was advised by David Miliband actually that he said to me, "There's lots of people in Downing Street, which is always like a court, no matter who the prime minister is, and the currency is how often can you get in front of the prime minister." So you've got to have a defined job. If you don't have a defined job, you've no reason to be in the meetings and you end up feeling very dissatisfied. So whatever you do, define a job. And I thought, I'll define my job as speechwriter. What a great job. I'd never written a speech in my life. And uh, I had, and you said we've not mentioned any speechwriters. I have no speechwriters amongst my influences at all. I know a lot about them subsequently but none of them were influences on me in the slightest and I just turned up one day and had to try and write speeches for the Prime Minister.
0: So do you remember what was the first speech you actually wrote for Tony Blair?
1: Unfortunately, I do. Yes, <laughs> a very <laughs> undistinguished affair. Um I wrote one, uh it, he was just about to go on holiday. It was the kind of the end of the end of the term just after the election of 2005. And uh I've contributed to speeches before for for quite some time, but I, this was the first one I wrote on my own. And it was about risk. It was about the culture of litigation in public services. I can I mean I can I bet everyone was thinking, wow, that must have been incredibly fascinating. <laughs> and uh, I, whatever interest there is in that topic, I managed to extricate and make it extremely dull. It was too long, it was too academic, it was too much like an essay, it was not really a speech. And because he was at the end of the term, and was keen to go on holiday, he didn't really pay that much attention and he read it out wow. in a bored fashion and it wasn't a great success.
0: Just talk me through a bit of what the experience was like working with him. Then you know, was he very active on the whole in contributing and helping shape it?
1: Yeah, on the whole, he was. I mean, that was a that was a very uh, misleading uh, initial uh, on- entry into the into the art. Uh, he was very active, but, but but only active at the end. So the the, pro- the process would be the same every time. About two or three weeks before the speech was due. We'd have a meeting with a bunch of people about what it might conceivably be about. And we'd knock around a few, a few ideas. When I was first started, I made the mistake then of going off and writing a speech on the basis of that meeting. I quickly learned that was an error because, firstly, everything changes in three weeks in politics. So you're never going to deliver that speech. So there's no point writing it because everything will be different. The other reason it was no point writing is that he hasn't really engaged yet. You know, he's prime minister. He's too busy. Three weeks is light years away. It doesn't matter in the slightest. And he hasn't really taken it seriously. So what I would often do in the early stages is I'd, I'd give him that speech and he would be barely read it. And he'd send it back to me. He'd say, no, 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 I don't want that. I want you to add this and this and this. And I'd say, but all of that's already in there. And he'd say, well, I'll just, I just want it different. I then learnt the trick of giving him the speech early on. And then when he said that, I want this, this, and this, I'd take it back, but I'd then give him exactly the same speech about a week later. And I'd say, yeah, I've changed it all. And he'd say, yeah, that's much better. And then with about three or four days to go, it got serious. So then we'd have another meeting where we went through it properly and we'd really think it through. And then... We've come to the day itself with a pretty good script, but the day itself was absolutely uh, frantic. So I would get into Downing Street usually you know, very early in the morning, you know, six or so, and I'd go up to his flat. He lived in the flat above number eleven Downing Street, and he'd be sitting there with my script, and he'd be writing on it. He'd be scribbling away with a fountain pen, and then he would we'd cut and paste. And I don't mean a sort of computer cut and paste. I mean, literally with scissors, cutting out bits of paper and taking it downstairs where I could find print sticks and pasting it on a card. So we had this thing. And then I would go away and type up the considered version, which usually ended up with his introduction, my body of text and his uh, conclusion. And it shouldn't have worked. It's no way to construct anything, but it sort of did work. Because we both enjoyed the last-minute dash.
0: You're like a mini writer's room. It's
1: just that I was on my own. I mean, what the big difference is between the American experience and the British experience, which is true in speech writing as, as it is in comedy, is that you're on your own. You know, you're a lone wolf, whereas the Americans, of course, they are in a room. There's a lead writer, but there's there's a lot more. Uh, they're, they're working as a team, uh, whereas I, I was just left to my own devices.
0: Did it feel glamorous? Because it can feel from outside that there was a sort of glamour around the premiership of Tony Blair. Was it glamorous to be part of it?
1: I th- well, I thought so. But that's a sort of because every day I went to work and I knocked on the big door of Downing Street and the policeman opened it and I walked in. And yeah, I, I kind of made a point of a mental note of thinking I'm not going to regard this as routine and ordinary because it isn't. It actually is glamorous and it's great and it's amazing. And look at me. I'm I'm walking up Downing Street and it's a sort of bizarre and amazing. So, yeah, there was a sort of glamour. But then, like everything else, it's also a job and there are days when, when it all goes wrong and it's a nightmare and you could be anywhere. But I do think you, you have to hang on to a little bit of that sort of humility and, and childlike capacity for wonder at the fact that you're writing for the prime minister. It's amazing. Tell me about the best speech you think you wrote for him. It was without doubt the final speech that he gave to the Labour Party conference. It was 2006. He's already announced that he's going to uh, leave office the following summer. And so we know this is the final big occasion, the final set piece. And... I'm very proud of it as a speech. I mean, I, I wouldn't claim I wrote it all because the big set of speeches like that, there are many hands and he's deeply involved at every stage. So, you know, that, I was one amongst many hands, but I, I kind of held the pen. And I thought it, it, was, it was a really, really good serious speech. In fact, it was about a very contemporary speech. It was about the way that globalization is bringing dissatisfaction, to lots of places and opening up the divides it's a speech which reads really really well in the light of the brexit referendum and in the light of the, the subsequent referendums it's a red wall speech so it's very so sort of articulate and, and quite prophetic in a way but yeah. I, I wish i wish all that high intellectual stuff was the reason it I, my contribution was remembered, but it isn't my contribution is remembered because of a stupid joke that i found in a joke book and uh, i mean you I don't know if you remember, but the de- every year, the Blair and Brown speeches were subject to this kind of contest in the press. Uh, Brown would speak on the Tuesday and he'd do a speech which was always seen as a bid for the leadership. And then it would always be, Blair has to top Brown's speech the following day. When, on the day that Brown spoke in 2006, Cherie Blair had really rather foolishly said something out loud to a journalist to the effect that she didn't believe Gordon Brown. I mean, she'd been incredibly rude about Gordon Brown within earshot of a journalist. And so within no time at all, this was everywhere. And the mornings, the papers the next morning were all full of Brown, of Cherie Blair fight with Gordon Brown, and it completely obliterated coverage of Gordon's speech. So he was furious, as you can imagine. We realised we had to somehow refer to this. We had to deal with this in the speech the next day. And I th- immediately thought, well, it's got to be a joke. It goes back to comedy. i would realized that one of the best ways in which you can concede a point is to wrap it up in a joke because an audience takes the point whilst they're laughing. And so I thought, well, it's got to be a joke. Now, what can it be? There's elements here of music hall. It's the guy next door, it's his wife. It's a sort of seaside postcard setup. Now, what can I find? So I, found, I had an old joke book with me, which I carried everywhere, and I, fa- I looked up Les Dawson, and I found this old Les Dawson joke, which, which runs... Um, my wife's run off with a guy next door, and do you know what? I'm really going to miss him. And we thought, well, that's kind of <laughs> funny in a vulgar way, but it's a bit vulgar for the Prime Minister, so we, we customised it.
0: Something I don't say often enough. Thank you to my family.
1: Um... To the children, to Cherie, I mean, well, at least I don't have to worry about her running off with the bloke next door. Slightly to my surprise, it sort of took the roof off in the hall in Manchester, and then the papers the next day were double page spreads all about the joke, and and my book made it onto Channel 4 News. So it was sort of an enormous moment that I didn't quite have planned, and that that without doubt is my biggest moment as a speechwriter.
0: What was the most difficult speech you had to write for Tony?
1: The most difficult one I had to write was one I disagreed with. And there's a lot you disagree with when you work for a, a politician. And I mean, I, I, you sign up to the general uh, run of things politically. And and yet there's plenty of things I didn't agree with. And I had to write a speech on ID cards. And I was ve- vehemently opposed to ID cards. I thought they were just a really bad idea. And Blair was strongly in favour of the And of course, he was prime minister and I wasn't, and and I didn't set government policy. It was my job in that instance to make the best possible case for writing for for the advocacy of ID cards, which I did. And I found it both difficult and yet also one of the best speeches I ever wrote. The, The task of subjecting something you don't think to critique was, in fact, incredibly invigorating. And I thought, and he thought too, that in the end, I avoided all the pat- rubbish arguments in favour of ID cards, because I just couldn't bear to write them. And I forced myself to to go deeper and find better arguments. So although I didn't end up quite convincing myself of the case, I did see some of the case in the process of writing it. And it was incredibly torturous to get there. But it was quite an education to me. and I, And I weirdly quite enjoyed it.
0: Right, here's another question um, that's coming from the audience. Apart from Keir Starmer, who would you say are the most compellingly effective speakers on the current Labour front bench?
1: I actually am quite optimistic about it. I think they're quite good. I think Lisa Nandy is quite good. I think Rachel Reeves is good. Rachel has real authority in her subject. I think Annalise Dodds has got real potential. I think Nick Thomas-Simons has got potential. So I think all of them, they have yet to present, though, really a character because they're not very well known and it's going to be interesting to see how they emerge as we have not had many politicians come from opposition in recent years to become major national figures politics has become much more cautious and people have much less ready to take a risk with their language i understand why because of the scrutiny because of the things we're saying in the previous question the temptation to be very cautious is almost is overwhelming um and so you you can't get people to be poetic like you like Lloyd George was once upon a time so i think that's a major constraint and but within those constraints i think there are some good people on the the labor benches i think i mean for someone like me who was i could not bring myself to uh, advocate voting Labour under the previous leader. It's just nice to have a leader and a team that I don't feel ashamed of. And I feel perfectly happy in public saying I think some of them are very good.
0: So just to clarify, you left the Labour Party and it was explicitly over anti-Semitism. Is that right?
1: That's right. Something which is just too, too big a deal. So you can't advocate a prime minister who has those views.
0: There's a couple of questions that have come up from audience uh, members about Keir Starmer. I want to put them into one which I wanted to ask you, which is, there is a lot of interest in Keir Starmer as an accomplished barrister performing against Boris Johnson at Prime Minister's Questions. But I've been really struck since the whole pandemic. You know, there was one incident where Boris Johnson just came back with, oh, you've got more briefs than Calvin Klein. And I every day I see comment writers saying how inappropriately flippant that was, and yet none of it i just wonder does any of it matter anymore hasn't hasn't british politics got just as toxic in its own way as american politics
1: well it will only matter if it if that comes to describe something that people might think so if it becomes a good encapsulation of what the public think about Keir Starmer, then, then it might matter. But that's more because it captures something that's already there latent in the public. It doesn't create it. So I don't think you can, with a witty line at PMQs, you can simply insert yourself in people's heads and change their minds. I think what you're doing is capturing something and making it very salient. And I do think it's an interesting one to go on with Keir Starmer because... You go all the way back to Aristotle. There are three components to, to rhetoric. There's what, they, what he calls forensic, which is lawyers. It was uh, the rhetoric of court. There's deliberative, which is the rhetoric of the assembly, which is debate. And then there's display, which is the rhetoric of the platform where you're being flowery. And Keir Starmer's is obviously brilliant at the forensic. And we're yet to see whether he can do the others. And you do need to, because this is my Hillary Clinton point. If, you, if all you are is forensic, it's better than not being forensic but it's not enough. You need a character and you need a sense of emotional connection. And it remains to be seen where, how the character of Keir Starmer develops as this novel unfolds. We, I think we've seen he, what, he can do questions. I think we've seen he's clearly highly intelligent and, and an entirely credible figure at this level of politics. What we haven't yet seen is whether, and this is where Boris Johnson does have it over him, whether Keir Starmer's character is going to be able to carry the message. And that's a challenge for him. And and again, he's someone I'd be interested in talking to because how he emerges as a character is going to be fascinating.
0: Philip Collins, thank you so much. Well, that's the last episode of this series of How I Found My Voice. We will be back with some one-off specials before the next full series of episodes. But in the meantime, do spread the word about us. Subscribe so you can listen back to the whole back catalogue of episodes with guests such as Sir Michael Palin, Catherine Ryan, Margaret Atwood and Gloria Estefan. And please do rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help build our profile and helps other people to find us. Thank you for listening.